The dominant religion of the modern era, at least in the United States, but probably worldwide, is pantheism, or if you want to call it omnism or pluralism. But basically, the belief that all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe, but as long as you're sincere and that you believe it with all your heart, and of course you follow the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that you're okay and that God will accept that as valid and give you entrance into heaven. There's a few problems with that. To list just a few, it makes God unacceptably weak. It makes God unable to fix the problems with men, and therefore he just accepts them the way they are. Another problem is that he is fundamentally immoral. To accept worship that violates even the absolute universal standards of men makes the morality of God less than the morality of men, making him immoral. A third is that it makes God loveless and indifferent. He has no interest in revealing himself to man. If every mode of worship is accepted, even the ones that contradict each other, then that just brings confusion, and we're never able to come to a realization of who God actually is. It causes us to ask, well, am I supposed to love my enemies, or should I kill my enemies? Well, God doesn't care, as long as I'm sincere. And so, therefore, he's indifferent. I don't know who he is. I can't know him. The conclusion is that the pantheist is actually the one who is indifferent. They don't care who God is, as long as, whoever he is, he helps them and doesn't interfere with their life and what they want to do. Now, the Bible teaches us that there is one God, that he's the creator and the sustainer of all things, that he knows all things, that he's all-powerful and can do all things, that he's sovereign, that he's present, ever-present, that all things exist for his purpose, that he's holy, and that he's neither loveless nor indifferent. And not only does the Bible teach that there is one God who is all of those things, but the Bible tells us that there is one way to God and that that way is narrow. Why do I bring that up? Because tonight we're in Judges chapter 6. And in this fifth sin salvation cycle, we see the calling of the fifth judge or deliverer of Israel in this season of their existence. We begin to look at the life of Gideon. And Gideon's story, this fifth sin cycle, differs from all of the ones that we've looked at so far in two things. Number one, it's much less abbreviated. Usually there's a half a chapter or a chunk of verses or at most a chapter that tells the story. But for Gideon, we get three entire chapters that highlight his life and ministry. It's much less abbreviated. Chapter 6 tells us nothing except about his call and how God reached into his life and began to deal with him that he might become a savior to the nation. Chapter 7 then talks about the ministry or the battle that he led. And then chapter 8 talks about what happened after that, how his life finished. So it's much less abbreviated and it's also much more personal. We learn a lot about Gideon. So far, we've seen Othniel and Ehud 
and Shamgar and Deborah and Barak. And though we've seen what they did, we've seen very little about them. Who were they? How did they encounter God? How did he work in their life? We don't hear any of that. But with Gideon, we hear all of that, and we catch a glimpse of how God interrupted this man's life, raised him up, drew him to himself, and then sent him with a mission to affect the lives of others. And so tonight we see his calling and how he met God. Now, the book of Jude, the theme of the book of Jude is given to us in the first verses there that Jude wrote. And it's interesting what Jude writes in verse 3 of his short epistle. He says this. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. You might want to under that, underline that or highlight it or at least remember it. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, what motivated Jude to write his epistle to the church in New Testament times was to contend for the fact that there is one faith, that it was once for all delivered from God, and that it's a common salvation. That is, it's not many roads that lead to one God, and it's not many gods that all roads lead to. There's one God, there's one road, and it's a common salvation. And here's what that means. It means that anyone who finds God, who encounters the true and the living God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, that they all come to him, experience him, and know him in the exact same way. Yes, some of the peripheral things might vary. The circumstances surrounding it, the age that that person comes to know him, the way that God reveals himself, those things might vary slightly. But the experience that every child of God has will be common. It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a common salvation. And what's the point? Is that the same salvation that you and I enjoy if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ is the same faith, the same path that Gideon took as he came to know the true and the living God. And that's the path that we have highlighted for us tonight. It's the same basic ingredients. The person is, first of all, lost, separated from God and spiritually dead. They come then to despair, a realization that something is deeply wrong. That leads to conviction, a recognition of the sin issue, that which separates man from God. That is followed by revelation. God reveals himself to the individual as the answer. That then leads to consecration. The person then responds to that revelation and consecrates or dedicates, devotes their life to that same God. That's followed by number six, transformation. And that's when God moves into the life and begins to remodel, changing from the inside out. And then that is followed by promise. That is that God begins to move you into the thing that he created you for. Same basic ingredients, whether it was Adam, Noah, Moses, Gideon, David, Saul of Tarsus, Martin Luther, or you and I sitting here. 
God works the same way in our lives in drawing us to him. And we see all of those things in chapter 6 as we look at how God reached into Gideon's life. It begins in this first chunk of verses with Gideon and Israel lost, separated from God. Notice with me in verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian... For seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people from the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, which was all the way to the Mediterranean, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. We're told right off the bat that the cause of Israel's problem, Gideon along with his whole generation, is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. The problem that they faced is that there was a sin issue. They were separated from God. We're told what that problem then looked like. First of all, he mentions this group of people called the Midianites. Now, Midian was a descendant of Abraham and his wife Keturah, whom he married after Sarah, the mother of Isaac, had died. He had five or six sons with Keturah after Sarah passed away, and one of them was Midian. And Israel had a history with the Midianites. First of all, Midian was sent away so that he wouldn't share in the inheritance of Isaac. There was bitterness right off the bat between the son of Sarah and the son of Keturah, Isaac and Midian. His descendants became a very vicious Bedouin tribal people that inhabited the region of Saudi Arabia. They knew Moses and the Israelites during their years of wandering. In fact, Moses married a Midianite girl, Zipporah, daughter of Jethro, who was a priest of Midian. And so Israel had a history with the Midianites. And now these people rise up and they take their opportunity and they come against Israel and plunder them. Not just the Midianites, but it also says the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the perpetual enemy of Israel throughout their Old Testament history. This is the third time in the book of Judges that the Amalekites have come against Israel. Think about it. In five cycles, this is the third time that they've joined suit with Israel's enemies. In the Bible, they become a perfect type or picture of the flesh, the perpetual enemy of the believer. And without belaboring that point, I'll sow that thought in your mind and you can carry it through and hang on to it for future studies. But Amalek joined with Midian. And then third of all, it says the people of the east. These would be the descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael was the byproduct of Abraham's great sin. When he took his handmaid, Hagar, that he picked up in Egypt, listened to the voice of Sarah, trusted in his own intellect and reason, 
and had a child who became a perpetual nightmare. The descendants of Ishmael. And so these are the enemies that come against Israel because of their sin. And it tells us that what they did is that they plundered Israel at the time of harvest. Now it's interesting that Josephus, the historian, he tells us, and it's implied here but not spelled out, that it was only during the months of harvest that the Midianites with their allied people, forces, would come in against the children of Israel and take their spoils. That the rest of the year, they would leave them alone. And so their confidence would get built up. They would think, well, this year is going to be different. And they would sow in the land. They would have a great, you know, sowing and plowing. But then once the harvest time would come, then the Midianites, it says that they would come in like locusts. They would take everything that was out in the open, including the livestock, and they would destroy the land behind them, leaving the people reduced to cavemen. It would be like for you and I, if every payday someone came and stole the entirety of your paycheck. You work all week, you earn that living, and then before you can get it to the bank, someone robs you, and it happens every week for seven years. And that's what happened to the Israelites during this time. And so how do we apply what's taking place with them to what happens to the believer in New Testament times. This represents the person who is separated from God. They don't know Him. They're alienated because the sin issue hasn't been dealt with. And thus their life is a continual train wreck. Their past, the Midianites, keeps catching up with them and won't let them advance. Their flesh, that those drives and desires inside of them keep rising up within them and they can't get past them because they're too strong. And their sins, the sins of their fathers, the Ishmaelites of our past, keep visiting us, those things that plague us that we don't even know why they're there, but for some reason there are chains, things that hold us down. And the result of it is that our lives, apart from Christ, are a continual series of highs and lows, but they never really advance beyond the lows. Because the hope of the highs comes, but then the disaster of the lows undoes all of the highs, and we find ourselves on a perpetual decline, sinking lower and lower, and becoming more and more of a shell, literally hiding in the dens and the caves, the recesses of our soul, becoming a fraction of what God intends us to be. So, they're in, this, they're in this place where they are lost, and it leads them to a place of despair. Notice the second half of verse 6. It says, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, why does it take seven years, seven continual cycles of a plundered harvest for these people to finally call out to the Lord? I believe that the answer is because of denial. That is... If the root of the problem, the reason for this problem, is sin and that they're separated from God, they're living in rebellion, then that would mean that the fix of the problem would be to repent and turn to God. And the fact that they don't repent and turn to God means that they're not owning the fact that the cause of the problem is their rebellion and the fact that they've turned away from God. And so here's what they do. They're going to try everything else. For seven years, they're going to fortify. They're going to train. They're going to rise up and try to withstand the Midianites and their conglomerate forces. They're going to put forth more effort. 
They're going to try to hide the harvest. They're going to put it in more strategic areas so as not to let the Midianites find it. And they're going to try everything they can to try to blame the problem on the Midianites and the circumstances rather than the real issue, which is that they had forsaken and turned away from the Lord. And and it's a terrible place to be. And, And here's how you know when you're there is when you, in your life, won't own the fact that the reason for your problems and your continual demise and that you can't get anywhere and that life doesn't make sense is because you have to turn to the Lord. And so you try harder. You try to fix your problems yourself. You think that the answer is in making better plans or having more discipline or going through more education, trying to get yourself beyond where you are. And here's the amazing thing, is that Satan knows how to back off until payday. And so, you know, you think, okay, well, things have been going rough for me. I've had a rough stretch. But now I'm going to really pull myself up from my bootstraps. I have a new outlook, a new vision. i got a new path, and I'm going for it. And Satan backs off and says, go. And he watches you get all excited. He watches you go and, and push forward and, you know, say the words, the me I see is the me I'll be, or whatever it is that you go forth to do. But then once it's time to reap the harvest, he steps right back in and he brings you right back down to where you were before and you find that you're nothing gained for it. So how do we apply this? The Israelites and the lost person who finds themselves in despair, you have three choices. Here they are. Number one is that you can live in perpetual poverty, never getting beyond what you are right now. Or you can perpetually think up new strategies. You can just go from one thing to the next and keep running away from the real issue in your life, which is that you're not right with God. And hopefully you never run out of room. You can find new things to cover the real problem until the day you die. Or, choice number three, is that you can cry out to the Lord. And it takes these seven years, but they catch on. And it says that they cry out to the Lord. Now what happens... Once a person who's lost and separated from God, that's been brought to the bottom of the barrel, to the place of despair, and they cry out to God, what happens next? The third thing is conviction. Notice with me in verse 7. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Before God raises a deliverer and sends them salvation from the issue that's at hand, he first sends a prophet to them to testify against them. That prophet lists seven things that God had done for them. I brought you up. I brought you out. I delivered you out. And I delivered you out of the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out. I gave you their land. And then I gave you my word, my promise. Do not fear. I'll drive them out before you. Seven things God says, I did for you, and your response to me was that you did not obey my voice. 
that you rebelled. You lived a life of disobedience. So God does this thing. He raises up a prophet before the deliverer to point out, listen, to point out their sin. To bring their sin to the forefront of their understanding that they might find conviction of it and that it might bear its full weight upon their soul. You say, why did God do this and why is this necessary? Why is it that before God can reveal himself to a person and save their soul, he must lay the weight of conviction of sin upon their life in such an incredible way? Is it just so God can point out his righteousness and make us feel real bad about ourselves? Why does God do this? Here's why. Listen carefully. And if you don't hear anything else you hear tonight, hear this. There is no conversion to God without repentance of sin. And there is no repentance of sin without true conviction of sin. It's absolutely necessary. If you had a child, and if you don't have a child here tonight, just pretend that you do and remember what you were like when you were a child. But if you had a child who was nasty, abrasive, disobedient who took for granted everything that you do, who you are, and what you provide, that treats their siblings with arrogance, that wastes what you provide, there would be no tenderness or affection within that relationship. If you're a parent and you've ever experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a rift. There's a separation. There can be no tenderness because you see that that person is living in a self-consumed, destructive, arrogant, selfish way. And so there's a rift, there's a problem, there's something going on. And so here's what you do in response to that as a parent, is that you begin to remove blessings and privileges from that child and perhaps maybe inflict consequences for their actions so that they feel your displeasure over their behavior and the way that they are acting. So here's what happens when they lose those privileges, when you inflict that pain within them. They repent. They say, wow, well, as long as I behave X, Y, and Z, that means I don't get A, B, and C. And so, therefore, I better not do X, Y, and Z or else I'm not going to get what I'm supposed to get. And there's a repentance. But that repentance is not the result of a conviction. It's a a result of wanting a different outcome. I don't want to lose these privileges But there hasn't really been a change of heart. They've changed their behavior, but there hasn't been any recognition or realization of what's really wrong inside. But if repentance is because of conviction, the result of that is sorrow. I'm sorry for the way that I've been treating you, mom and dad, taking for granted who you are and what you've given me. I'm sorry for the way I've been treating my siblings and wasting what you've given and my attitudes and actions. I can see now that those things aren't right, and therefore I repent. I'm sorry, and I'm changing my ways not because of what I'm going to get, but I'm changing it because I really understand that what these things are is wrong. And once that happens... In a parent-child relationship, the relationship is restored. There's tenderness again. 
The joy comes back into the parent's heart and face. The desire for that child, the the fellowship, the intimacy, it's there because there's been a brokenness in the heart, a realization of the issue, and repentance based upon that illumination. Now, when it comes to belief in God and our salvation, only the Holy Spirit can bring conviction of sin into the heart and life of a person. It cannot be done by man. It can't be done by persuasive words. It can't even be done by consequences to actions. The removing of blessing, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all of the things that happen to us negatively, none of those things can produce conviction within us. They can produce repentance, but it's not true repentance. It's not a change of heart. There's been no conviction. There's been nothing inside where the lights have been turned on And we realize and recognize who we are, how bad we are, what we've done, how good he is, and what that all means. Only the Holy Spirit can produce that in the life of the child of God. Now, here's what it looks like when it actually happens to you. Here's what what it would be like, the best I can describe it. It would be like you're sitting where you're sitting right now in this place. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, you were naked. Just like that. All of your clothes are gone, and you're the only one in the whole room like that. Everyone else still has clothes on, and it only takes about a minute, and everybody starts going, and you're like, I can't get up. You feel like you're the only one in the room. You say, well, that doesn't really bother me. In fact, I'd actually like everybody to see what's going on under here, you know. Okay. Then, for you, Zeus, it would be like, It would be like, not only that, but every sin you've ever committed, whether it be in your thoughts, with your eyes, or with your hands, every sin that you've ever committed is tattooed on your naked body in large, bold letters. I mean, but everybody can see how many there are, even though it's large, bold letters. Every single one is tattooed right on you, and it's exposed What would you feel like if that was the case? You say, that one doesn't do it for me, preacher. Here's another one. It would be like this. It would be like if someone came to your house. They were going to do a, you know, home inspection or check for insects or rodents. And they came into your house that you thought was perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong here. I just have to do this because I'm trying to sell it or something. So they come to your house and they look at you and they say, you got bugs. And you say, come on, I don't got bugs. And they say, you got bugs. No, I don't. I, I, I live here. I would know if I, you got bugs. And then all of a sudden, they turn on an infrared light. And what you see on the ceiling, the floor, the walls, the couch is billions, not millions or hundreds, billions of tiny little creepy biting bugs crawling all over the place. What would you feel like at that moment? <sighs> this, get them out. Get them out. Listen. That's the conviction point when that happens in your soul. When the Holy Spirit of God turns the lights on and only He can do it, and you realize who He is and how holy He is. And then you realize how undone and how sick you are and your sin becomes visible and it's seen by you as so incredibly wicked and disgusting that you're ashamed of it before God and before men. After all he's done and all he is, 
against the blackness, the sickness of what I am and what I was created to be, you realize that I have defiled his intention. And there's a breaking that happens inside when the conviction of the Holy Spirit over your sin hits your heart and soul. Now, since conviction must happen in the heart, only the Holy Spirit can do it. And without that conviction, listen, Without that conviction, there is no real repentance. And without repentance, there is no salvation. And that's biblical. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle or letter made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow, that's conviction, produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that when the conviction of the Holy Spirit is what produces your repentance, you hate sin. There's, a, there's an indignation within you against it. You say, I can't believe I lived that way. I can't believe I did those things. I can't believe I, I excused them and justified them for so long and tried to make them about everything else and comparing myself with everyone else and not with God alone. And when you see sin for what it is, all you want is to get it out. I want it out of my life. Yes, there's a struggle. It's a battle. Yes, there's chains and some things need to be broken and some things take time. But your attitude towards sin is changed 100%. That's a big difference between repentance that comes from consequences and repentance that comes from conviction. And that's why God sends a prophet to Israel before he sends a deliverer. Because they had to be put face to face with what their sin was and what it cost and what it causes before the salvation could come. That's what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is. And that is necessary in the life of every person that ever comes to the true and living God on the narrow way that leads to life. Is that there must be a conviction of sin that's birthed in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're living in sin tonight and you're indifferent about it or you excuse it away, You're using drugs in some manner, in any form, and I don't care what drug it is, but you're making excuses for it and you're saying it's no problem, it's no big deal, God doesn't care. Or if you're living in a way where you're dishonoring your body sexually, either by living in a relationship or being in a relationship with someone who is not your spouse, or by satisfying yourself through things that you're looking at on a computer screen, And those things are not a burden to you. There's no conviction in your heart. You can excuse it away and say, well, I go to church. I do good things. It's no big deal. It it doesn't matter. Or if you're living in ungratefulness and appreciation for who God is, 
or if you're even living outside of a relationship with God at all, and it doesn't bother you, then you're in a very fearful place. And you should fear for your soul because the Spirit of God needs to convict you so that you can come to a place of repentance and salvation. After conviction comes revelation that leads to salvation. Look in verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree which was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. It happens to Gideon that on a day when he least expected, at a time when he thought it wouldn't, and in a way that he could never have imagined, God shows up in his life. He comes as the person of the angel of the Lord, which we have seen already in our studies. This is none other than a pre-coming appearance of Christ. It's called a Christophany, if you want the technical term. But God appears to him in angelic form and tells him that the Lord is with him. Now, Gideon has honest questions and reservations about God and about the word that this angel of God is declaring to him. He says, hey, look, I know who you are, at least who our fathers told us you are. And I'm aware of the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the salvation that you've given in days past. But when I look at what's going on in the world around me, I'm not seeing that same reality of a true and living God in my circumstances. I've heard it with my ears, but I have yet to experience it. And he expresses these doubts. And notice with me in verse 13, it says that Gideon said to him, O my Lord. And if you look at that word Lord there, you'll notice that there's a lowercase l. That's not a typo. It's not a mistake. It's a word that's used to speak of someone as a man. In other words, he's not agreeing yet with the fact that this is in fact God. He's calling him Lord, or it's a term of respect. It's like saying, sir. And so he calls him lowercase Lord, and then he expresses his doubts, his concerns, his reservations. Now, here's the amazing thing. God doesn't answer even one of his questions. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know I did those things in times past, but there's been some things that have happened, and you guys have really turned away, and someday you're going to see it. Just hang in there a little bit longer and believe for your miracle, Gideon. He doesn't do any of those things. He basically looks at Gideon and he says, look, do you want to talk about the past or do you want to talk about the future? I'm here right now. I'm calling you. Are you in or are you out? And that's the ultimatum that God gives to Gideon. 
It amazes me, by way of application, how often man seeks to put God on trial. God came to Joshua, and Joshua said, Are you for us or for our enemies? Putting God on trial. God said, No. Are you for me or for my enemies? I'm not the one on trial, Joshua. You are. Jeremiah looked at God and he said, God, why is it so hard? Why is this life so hard? This ministry that you've given me, this calling. And God looked at Jeremiah and he said, Hey, if you can't run with the footmen, how are you going to keep up with the horsemen? It doesn't have anything to do with me and why I'm making your life hard. It has to do with you and if you're going to draw the strength from me that you need to do what you need to do. I'm not the one on trial, Jeremiah. You are. I think of the woman at the well. Jesus asked for a drink of water. And she began to imply that he wasn't worthy of her drawing water for him. She said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews. Why is it that you asked me to get you water? And Jesus looked at her. God looked at this woman who was putting him on trial. And he said, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked of me, and I would have given you living water. I'm not the one on trial here. You're the one on trial. And we see it here with Gideon. We see Gideon putting God on trial, asking God questions. God, if you'll answer my questions... If you'll come through with my points of skepticism and give me a satisfactory answer, then maybe I'll follow you, God. But my life's been hard, and the reality is that I've heard about you, but what I've heard isn't lining up with what I'm experiencing, what I'm seeing. So you address these things, God, and then I'll maybe follow you. I'll make a decision. And God looks at Gideon, and he says, Oh, so I have to give answers. It's up to me to provide answers for your problems. We do the same thing. We say, God, there's contradictions of scientific beliefs. And I don't know if I have answers. What happened to the dinosaurs? What happened to, you know, the millions of years and and what's been going on here? God, I don't know what's going on with that. Answer my question. Lord, why are there so many problems in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? God, where were you when I was a child and these awful things happened to me that make me the way I am? Where were you then, God? Why are things so bad? God looks at anyone who asks those questions and he says this, I don't owe you an explanation. That's the answer. Are you in or out? Every person that ever lives will have an opportunity to receive an invitation from God to be in. Everyone will have that chance. God will make sure of it. We will all get a fair choice. And this could be yours. You could right now in this season of your life be going through the moment that God is giving you an opportunity to say, I'm in, I'm on your side. Maybe not tonight. I'm not saying that because you're hearing me speak that this is God giving you the chance. It might be. But it might be this season. Your schedule allows you to be coming to church here. Or maybe you've made friends with someone and you've been coming to the fellowship, never done it before. It's weird. You're hearing strange things. This could be the chance that God is giving you in your life. The ultimatum, are you in or are you out? And you don't know if you'll ever get another chance like that again, but God will make sure that you have your fair chance. Well, for Gideon, it led to salvation. 
In verse 14, notice this. It says, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? Now watch this. So he said to him, O my Lord. Circle it. Do you see it? There's a capital L. He calls on the name of the Lord. He believes. He casts in his lot. He says, I'm in. He says, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest and I am the least. And God said, I will be with you. And surely you shall defeat the Midianites. God says, go. Gideon says, Lord. And God says, good. You're in. Now I've got a plan for your life. Let's get moving. Listen. Salvation is not God coming to you and putting in an application asking if he can have access to your life. It isn't like God comes and he says, look, I really need a place to stay and I want a heart and I'm standing at the door and I filled out all of this and I hope it's to your accepting and that we now come and say, okay, well, God, let me see what you have to offer me. And we take God's application and we look it over and we say, okay, he stands at the door of my heart and he knocks. And if I'll open, then he'll come in and eat my food. Okay, so, and he's going to take over my life. And yes, he promises certain things, but it's also going to cost certain things. And I'm going to have to, and we go through the application. We say, okay, God, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an interview. (laughs) And then we begin to ask our questions. God, why do bad things happen to good people? I want to know about these years of my life, grades three through seven. They were pretty rough years and they took a toll on me. God, why did you let that happen if you're so powerful and so real? And we interview God and we say, God, if you answer my questions acceptably, then I'll accept your application and I'll let you come inside. But, one year probation, God. If I don't like the way things shape out during that one year, Lord, I am gonna, you're gonna have to pack up and you're gonna go. So this is probationary. I'm letting you in, but I'm holding you at arm's length, God. Listen, that's not what salvation is. Let me tell you what salvation really is. This is what it is. God comes to you. And here's what God says. He says, you are a rebellious, wicked, ungrateful, proud, selfish, defiled piece of slime. But I love you. I made you in my image. And to prove it, I sent my son into your world who lived a perfect life and was the demonstration of what man was supposed to be. And I let the rest of the creation crucify him brutally, nailing him to a cross, pressing a crown of thorns into his head and whipping the flagellum across his back, literally bleeding him out on the ground. And every drop of that blood was spilled to pay the price for your wicked, selfish, slimy defilement. And I did all of that for you because I love you. Here's the deal right now. Is that I'm giving you a chance to receive a free gift of forgiveness of all your sins. And then I'm going to come into your life and complete you and make you what I made you to be. And you're going to experience my love. And you're going to hear my voice. And you're going to have the presence of my Holy Spirit with you and upon you always. And you're just going to discover what all of life is all about and what it was all meant to be. And that's what I'm willing to do for you. Are you in or are you out? And that's what salvation is. He doesn't force us. He invites us to come. 
And it's amazing to me that as soon as Gideon says, I'm in, God begins to answer his questions. How is this going to work, God? God says, don't worry, kid. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. After revelation comes consecration, verse 17. It says, then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat, an unleavened bread, and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now every sacrifice that's offered in the Bible represents the offerer. In other words, you would bring a sacrifice to God and he would be a substitution for yourself. By offering the animal, you would be saying, it should be done unto me. The bleeding out, the death of this animal, but instead it's going to be this animal. It's it's taking my place. It's my representation. So by making this sacrifice to the Lord, it's an offering of his life to God. And notice what he does. It says that he lays it upon the rock. And then he pours out the broth. He lays his life upon the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. And then he pours it out. It's consecration. I'm giving my life totally to you. It is poured out in absolute abandon to you. Once the consecration, the offering of the life takes place, notice it says that the Lord touches it and fire came out of the rock and consumed the offering that was there. This is a representation, a picture for you and I, of what happens when we consecrate our lives to God, and it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said that he that comes after me is greater than I. I'm not even worthy to unlace his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And on the day of Pentecost, what what was the appearance on the top of their heads? It was fire. It's a picture of the Spirit of God coming into and coming upon the life of the person that's consecrated. Now, when does it happen? It happens at consecration. It happens when we say, God, my life is yours. I'm laying it down upon the rock. I want you to have all of me, and I'm willing to pour out the entire contents of who I am to you. It was then that the Lord touched it, and fire issued forth out of the rock and consumed it. It happened when they did that. Now, what happened? Look at verse 22. It says, Now Gideon perceived that that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, For I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it is still there in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Three things happened as soon as this fire consumed this offering. Number one is that he was able to perceive spiritual truth. 
He perceived that this was the angel of God. There was an understanding that came from within that helped him to comprehend the truths of God. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into and upon your life. You can understand the truths of God. You have the mind of Christ. Number two, he can hear the still small voice. Notice verse 23. It says, then the Lord said. Now, pause there. Look at it with your eyes. Back up in verse 21, it says that the Lord departed. So the angel is now gone, and God is still speaking. And Gideon can hear it. It says, and the Lord said to him, peace be with you. And that's number three, is that he experiences incredible peace. That's what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon the life of the consecrated worshiper. You perceive spiritual truth, you hear the still small voice, and you experience incredible peace. And then God begins to move in his purpose and plan for your life. Now, after consecration comes transformation. And we are almost done. I know you're looking at the clock. Verse 25. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, again, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built so they said one to another who has done this thing and when they had inquired and asked they said Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing then the men of the city said to Joash bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, lowercase g, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day he called him Jerubbaal, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. God comes to Gideon at this point, and God says, Gideon, there is sin in your house. Maybe it didn't start with you, Gideon. Maybe it's something that your father started, but nevertheless, there's sin in your house, and that sin has got to go. If sin is the source of the problem that Israel is in in the first place, God is not going to solve the problem until he deals with the root of the problem, which is the sin. And so he commands him to get it out. The Apostle Paul said to the Romans in chapter 6, he said this, to the New Testament believer, to you and I, he said, sin shall not have dominion over you. It was not a command, it was a declaration. If it was a command, he would be saying, repent of all your sins. But that's not what he was saying. He was declaring a fact. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Listen, church. Listen, skeptic. 
Listen, person in bondage, there is no sin that you cannot be free from because the power of God, the power of the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life can give you victory over every sin, every issue. But you have to tear it down. He is not going to just flip a light switch and one day you're just going to be like, oh, wow, hey, I'm not stealing anymore. You have to tear down that image. You tear it down. If I ever have an office in this place or in any place that we have, the first piece of furniture I want is not a desk or a chair, even a computer. The first piece of furniture I want is a baseball bat hanger that I can hang on the wall. Say, okay, you like sports? No, 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 it has nothing to do with sports. I'm going to put a little Dewey Decimal System number on each of the bats, and I'm going to sign them out to people that come in and talk about some of the sins that they're struggling with. And I'm going to say, look, here, take the second bull and go tear down the altar. Put the bat through the TV screen or through the PC tower or through the screen or in, put just tear down the altar. You don't have to struggle year after decade under the weight of sin. God has given you the victory. You go tear down the altar now. It's a transformation. But God's not going to move you into the promise and plan that he has for your life until you deal with the thing that's getting you down in the first place. Because he's not going to give you victory just so you can live back in defeat. So deal with it. Employ the power of God. Paul said to the Romans, if you, by the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So do it. He's given us the equipment. Now do it. We're going to have to pause in the narrative right there. And that's okay because from verse 33 onward, it really begins the ministry, the battle section of uh, Gideon's part. It's the part with the fleece, and I don't want to rush through it uh, just to for the sake of saying that we finished the chapter tonight so we'll include it in our study of chapter 7 the bible says this the bible says that jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever it is the common salvation it is the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. It's this thing that we call Christianity. And as it was with Gideon, so it is with us. We all walk the same narrow road. There's one way to God. He invites us, and we experience Him on it. Father, we thank you tonight for this word for these truths that you lay out before us. This timeless testimony of how you reach into a life, reveal yourself, save a soul, and then send it forth with new new power, new purpose. We rejoice, Lord, that you have visited us, that even in this late hour of human history, you're still at work that you haven't quit, you haven't finished yet, but that you're still working, you're still saving, you're still convicting, you're still drawing. We pray that you would continue, that you would reach into our homes and save our unsaved loved ones, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and even our church, Lord. 
then in these last days, these desperate hours, it would please you to save those who would believe. So give us your grace, O Lord, and let us walk in your ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Before I say amen, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Today is the day of salvation. That if today you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You say, well, what day was he talking about? He's talking about the day that the Holy Spirit convicts you and reveals to you the light of who God is, the darkness of your sin, and the reality that you are, in fact, separated from him. That's the day that he's talking about. And it could very well be that tonight, this day, is the day for some of you that God revealed what's really going on in your life. Maybe there's been repentance, but it's not because of conviction. It's because of consequences. But the Holy Spirit of God touched you in such a way to reveal to you, to turn the lights on. Is there anyone here that wants to accept Jesus Christ tonight? You say, this is the night that God is giving me the ultimatum of saying, are you in or are you out? Is there anyone here before we close that says, tonight is my night? Jesus has spoken to me and I need to be saved. Just lift up your hand and say, I know, I know where I'm at and I know where I need to be. Anyone? Father, we just thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that you would us in these days. Bless these people, Father. Empower them. Let them be consecrated, fully devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together.